The old pilot's plain tales, rumbers and quarrels. In the last tale, Sidewinders and Sparrows, we talked a little about the history of rockets and missiles, but it's a big subject, so this week I thought I'd expand on the theme a little, and if you're going to mention lots of rattlesnakes and sparrows, one should probably use the correct collective noun rumbers and quarrels. Of course, technology has moved on since I last flew with weapons of war hanging off the aircraft, but even if I was a more recent member of the profession of arms, I probably couldn't talk about the latest technology much anyway. I finished up the last tale by mentioning the capability of medium and long-range missiles to take out targets beyond visual range, and how that presented tactical questions. A shooting war in the air is rarely a simple matter of finding a target and engaging it. The rules of engagement, the ROE, for a conflict may well require the fighters to work with one hand tied behind their backs. One limitation when the area is mixed with enemy fighters and returning friendlies might be the need for a positive identification of each and every target. In a complex jamming environment, or with limited electronic methods to confirm your target, a visual ID might be the only way which rather takes beyond visual range weapons out of the equation completely. Older technology might have used optical scopes to extend the range of the Mark I eyeball, but the preferred method was by using IFF, Identify Friend and Foe, a military version of a civil airliner's transponder. However, depending on the sophistication of the enemy's equipment, this can be jammed, or perhaps even cloned, so that the enemy aircraft can transmit friendly codes. Ideally, your conflict is fought within the coverage of a JATIDS network, the Joint Tactical Information Distribution System, where players within a battle area join a secure data link system combining information on enemy assets such as an opposing fighter aircraft. Friendly players might be ships, airborne early warning aircraft, ground radar units, air defence fighters, defensive SAM sites, indeed any component of the network which can contribute to the battle picture. Being a part of JATIDS is an easy way to identify players as friendly, and when enough data is gathered about a particular target, it is also able to classify it as enemy with a degree of certainty. However, an aircraft with battle damage or just an unserviceability might have fallen out of the network and could then be classified as an unknown or were still mistaken as enemy. History shows us just how easy it is to suffer a blue-on-blue -blue engagement, often with tragic consequences. In modern warfare, when almost any loss of life is considered a failure, such events are given highly critical levels of publicity. As such, the use of beyond visual range weapons can only really be permitted when there's a high level of command and control or the risk has become acceptable. 
Therefore, air-to-air missiles such as the long-range AIM-120 AMRAAM or the old AIM-54 Phoenix have their place, and when they fit within the rules of engagement, we might consider using them. They're often called fire and forget, but that's a long way from reality. Although from a completely different generation, they worked using the same basic principles. The missile would launch with data from the fighter's radar, giving the weapon's guidance system a target area to home towards. The fighter would need to continue to provide data to the missile in flight so that it could react to any target evasion, as the missile's own radar wasn't powerful enough to detect the target until it was much closer. Unlike with a semi-active missile, the Sparrow for example, the fighter's radar could remain in track while scanned during the missile's flight so that multiple targets could be monitored, whilst providing corrective updates to the missile in flight. During the final stage of the attack, the missile's own active radar would come alive and start searching for the target. Once detected, the missile could then take over responsibility for terminal guidance, and only at that point would it become a fire-and-forget weapon. If the fighter failed to provide data for a mid-course guidance, all was not lost. The missile would continue on to the expected intercept point using memorised data, and if the target hadn't evaded, there was still a chance it would be found and destroyed. There are many scenarios, ifs and buts, that we could discuss, but it's best to start with the basic ones and build up from there. Let's begin with a simple 1v1 mission, fighter against fighter, using semi-active missiles that require the target to be illuminated throughout the missile's flight. The first consideration is radar detection of the target, which is a matter of physics. The basic factors that will determine the range that a fighter can locate a target are the power output of the radar, the scanner size, and the target's radar reflective area. I won't go into stealth properties which are vital in reducing the radar reflective area of a target as these can complicate tactics. For example, if your stealthy properties are orientated to protect your forward quarter, you might always want to keep that pointing at your enemy, quite different from what I'm about to describe. The more powerful a radar transmitter is, the longer its potential range, but it's not a matter of doubling the power to get double the range. Here we're looking at a square law, so to double the range we need to quadruple the power. Having fired out a pulse of radar energy, it must reflect off the target and come back to the scanner to be detected. Now we must consider scanner size and efficiency, as a big scanner can obviously gather more energy for the receiver to work with. I'm leaving out many other variables, such as the type of radar pulse, the frequency and efficiency of the electronics, and completely ignoring the electronic countermeasure war that will be going on in the background. The fighter that gets first contact has a great advantage, as they can spend time working out the target's parameters and the geometry of the intercept. They can begin to position themselves, which often means accelerating and climbing. 
A major consideration for missile launch will be the additional energy that we can give our weapon so that it has an advantage over our opponents. If our missile has to accelerate and climb up to a target, it will have a much shorter firing range than if we can launch it while supersonic and give it a height advantage. It takes time to accelerate from a loiter, so the earlier we can start the process, the better. As we approach, we need to separate out our target from the rest of the formation. Not a problem in a 1v1, but in more complex scenarios, the sooner we can discriminate and resolve the targets, the better. Here it's our radar's beam width that plays an important role. The narrower the beam width, the better the resolution. It's a bit like a new television. Our old TV would look very blurry and indistinct compared with the nice shiny 4K Ultra HD screen. Having found our target and worked out his heading, height and speed, we should be racing to a suitable intercept point on his extended centerline, whilst accelerating and climbing to get the best launch parameters. If we're lucky enough to have a track while scan radar, we might be able to get all this information without alerting the target to our presence. He will be keeping one eye on his radar and another on his radar warning receiver, and although he might be seeing and hearing the bleeps and short spikes, telling him that our radar was sweeping over him, that's all he knows. Selecting track while scan gives us more information, but the additional dwell time needed can register on an RWR, so wherever possible we stay in search mode. Even if we only get a small jump on our opponent, every little helps. We might detect a target at 60 miles and would want a launch at 20 to 30 miles, so with a closing speed of 10 to 15 miles a minute, there's very little time to get organised. The fire computer will be calculating the maximum firing range, but that is dependent on many factors, some of which I've mentioned, such as speed and altitude of the fighter and the target, but one of the largest is the geometry of the intercept. The missile we fire has a limited range, but that will be drastically increased all the time our target cooperates by heading towards it. If we get into the heart of the missile's envelope, the launch success zone, then there is a high probability of a kill, or we could go even closer into the no-escape zone where it won't matter if the target evades hard as soon as we launch but that requires us to get even closer. Our tactics at this point may well depend upon the number of weapons available. If we have several at our disposal, then a good idea might be to pop one off just inside maximum range. In order to do that, we'll drive to the target centerline, lock the radar to guide the missile, and then turn to point our fighter in the ideal launch direction. Steady everything up for a second and fire. The target's information will be fed to the missile. It'll be kicked off the launcher, the motor will fire, and off it goes like a steam train. The moment it pops out in front, we'll perform what is known as an F-pole manoeuvre. 
from our high energy position pointing at the target as fast as possible, we'll reverse that situation. We'll turn hard to put as big an angle between us and the opponent as our radar will allow, descending into thicker air and slowing our forward progress, the opposite of our previous aims. This makes it much harder for the enemy fighter to return fire. As we slow and turn, his launch envelope will shrink and put us out of range, and all the time he tries to pursue us, he is making our missile's job and his ultimate demise easier. If he didn't know before, with his RWR screaming at him, by now he's worked out that we have locked, and by watching our F-pole manoeuvre, he'll guess there's a missile in the air coming at him. He has a couple of options. He can turn tail and run, which will almost certainly defeat our first shot, or he can fly a similar manoeuvre and guess that it will be enough to deplete our missile of energy. Whichever he chooses, he's really on the back foot. If he turns but keeps us on radar, he's hoping to survive the first missile coming his way, and as soon as we get back into range, we can turn back into him, fire a second missile, and turn away again. This second missile will have a much greater chance of success. Now we're playing the missile expenditure game. In a normal fit, the F-18 only carried a couple of sparrows, which is why something like an F-15 with four AIM-7 missile stations and a powerful radar with a narrow beam width would usually have the upper hand. If our target runs, often called pumping, then we can pursue them and try to run them down. At the same time, we'd break radar lock so they have less RWR information and dramatically change our height so if they chose to turn back, they wouldn't immediately know where to aim their radar and find us. With our radar in search, we also protect ourselves against his wingmen, had they pursued us and not stayed with their leader. What we hope for is our opponent to try to come back at us. Each of their big turns will cost them energy and let us close the gap, and all the time they're cranking their radar up and down to find us whilst we know exactly where they are and are closing into a no-escape zone firing, which will end the engagement. I say end the engagement, but every missile firing has a PK, a probability of kill. PK is a mathematical calculation of the success of a weapon to achieve its aims. It applies to all weapons, and in missiles, there are several factors that might cause a miss. Let's assume the probability of the missile staying serviceable throughout the attack, the launch successful, the motor firing and all the electronics working is a high 90%. Then the fuse has to work correctly and the warhead fire, another 90%. The likelihood that our radar will be operating correctly throughout the attack, the lock holding despite the target's evasion and any countermeasures ineffective might also be 90%. 
Other factors might be the success of the missile intercept guidance in achieving a suitable miss distance, also 90%. There may well be other factors, but just the ones I've mentioned will only give a total probability of kill of 63.6%, much lower than the individual percentages. From a simple 1v1 engagement, we will add layer upon layer upon layer of difficulty through 2v2, 4v4 and upwards. Now we're manoeuvring a whole formation throughout the sky. When we lock to fire, all of the aircraft in the formation do so in a contract so that no enemy aircraft remains untargeted because if we miss just one, then with every radar occupied guiding a missile, that one aircraft can press an undetected attack on us that will go unnoticed until they're amongst us. So all the time our intrepid fighter pilots are working their radars, handling their weapon systems and playing supersonic three-dimensional chess in the air, they also have to keep their eyes out of the cockpit, scanning the sky and checking their six for the one that got away. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you're enjoying Plane Tales, then why not pop over to your favourite podcasting app and leave us a review. We'd be very grateful.